Greetings, friends. Andrew Crusoe here with Ascendant. This is episode three, and I am so excited to share with you this interview with Jamie Caddo, an amazing musician and filmmaker and so many other things. This interview is just... I've been looking forward to this for a while. I need to give you a bit of a trigger warning, however. We do talk about suicide toward the end, but overall, this this interview is just very powerful. We talk about how art can change the world. We talk about perspectives. I was actually challenged in a really great way in this interview. You'll see. We talk about candle toes. You'll find out what that is. We talk about how funny Ram Dass can be and so much more. Uh, I, I'm going to just let you get into this. This is such a fun interview. Enjoy. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Ascendant. Today, I am so excited to have someone who I look up to, someone who's inspired me so much. He's a filmmaker, a director, musician, world traveler, Jamie Caddo. I have been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Oh, <laughs> such a pleasure. I'm doing so good. Um, I've just been looking on eBay because I'm suddenly interested in buying a bust of Anton Chekhov. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love starting out with something that feels random. <laughs> yeah. And you know life is good when that's what you're occupying your time doing. Oh yeah, if you're like delving into like what the new Apple Mac's going to be, the little details you're like, oh, things shouldn't be too bad, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Anton Chekhov is very much known for plays in his short stories. Um not for his longer writings, but there's one book I've just discovered which is a long bit of writing about a journey he took. It's non-fiction. A journey he took to a place called Sakhalin Island hmm. and the penal colony there as he went across Siberia and he writes all about it. And I love those kind of memoirs. So uh, I'm a happy I'm a happy bunny. Happy bunny. Uh <laughs> so how much are they going on eBay these days? About a hundred bucks. That's not too bad. Not too bad. You can, you can put it on your nightstand. You can... Then once you start with Chekhov, then you get into, then you think, well, I need a Tolstoy one. I need a Dostoevsky one. And where does it end? Suddenly all your shelves are covered in, in classic Ru- Russian writers and you've got no room for your tea. You got to have a special Russian room at that point. Exactly. Perfect. Which is what my library is beginning to look like. Oh, <laughs> I don't know where to start. <laughs> well, this, is te- this is technically the second time that I've had the the real pleasure and honor of talking to you. Seriously, um, mm. so thanks for. And this time we're dealing with a ten hour time difference. So thanks for. I'm glad this timing worked out. Um, I'm in Hawaii for a little while longer. Um, uh, you, this show, I, 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 you know, it's been a long time since we've talked. Um, I, you know, I rebooted the show. It's a totally different show now. And one of the main mm. things we talk about is journeys from scarcity to abundance. Uh. Right. And I was thinking about your life and, you know, for people not familiar with you, first of all, they ought to be because your work is awesome. Um, I watched Becoming Nobody for like the 12th time yesterday. <laughs> it's very helpful to keep watching that one. It keeps us all on track. Amen to that, bro. It, it's, it's like being out with the man himself. You know, you really feel like you're with him. 
Yeah. Well, this is this is one of the 14,000 things that I want to talk to you about, but we only have an hour. I want to be respectful of your time. And, and a little bit out. If you have flexibility, I'd love to have a bit of an after show for like 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, let's just flow. Let's flow. So uh, for people not familiar with your work, um, how do you tend to, you know what I mean? I want to talk about abundance. I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's your show. But mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I have no desire of any particular thing to talk about just <clears throat> wherever you lead i'm very happy okay um well i uh i'm just thinking about your journeys a- around the world you know i i still listen to one giant leap everybody should check out one numeral one giant leap so the best world music that i have and uh you know you got you you and duncan bridgman of course went around the world twice you know, over 50, yeah. 50 countries each time mm-hmm. made a, made a film, our last interview, which I might put in the show notes, um, at andrewcrusoe.com. It'll redirect you. Uh, our last interview, you talked a bit about, um, a bit about that journey and how it was very transformational. Um, and I think that that kind of fits into your whole, you know, every step moves us on, right? <laughs> every step you take. Uh, the... yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got a really good, con- uh, thing that we talk about recently seeing as you brought that up yeah. um it's good for people if anybody's kind of in a stage now where they they kind of know the direction they want to go in, but they don't really know where they're going they haven't quite got a clarity of mission or or destination or or a, a really clear um feeling that they know what they're doing or what they should choose a lot of people mm. uh, get like that they get quite panicked that they don't really know what exactly what direction to go in or they don't know what what um out of their many options that they should choose yeah so we have a concept we call candle toes which is the idea that you are ascending a staircase in in a very big dark place you're ascending this dark staircase Hmm. and but you only have a little candle on the toe of each of your shoes Hmm. and the candles only spread enough of a pool of light for you to see the next step or the next couple of steps you can't see the whole journey unfolding before you you can't see the destination you can't see the point you can't see exactly what you're supposed to be doing all you can see is the next step or two and it's a wonderful way to live to mm. surrender, to be here now, to being where you are on the path, knowing where you might step next or the next couple of steps at most, but not planning out a whole rigid, you know, it's not necessarily beneficial to have a whole laid out plan of where you're going to go mm-hmm. because, you know, we know what God does with our plans. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, candle toes, be satisfied mm. to just have that enough of a pool of light to go one step mm. further. That's that's a beautiful image, and it's also I'm thinking of a dear friend who I think that she would be comforted by that right now. I like that, but but is there? Do you feel like there's a line, Jamie, of like, I guess like how much? Here, okay, I'll take a step back. Your idea around that, like the planning, you know, because when you're a kid, especially if you when you're in uni. There, you know, you have advisors, right? Careers advisor. I advise you to get a career. What can I say? But no, but it's it's like they're telling you to kind of plan out your life and you get older and you realize what you're saying. Has that, how how much has that changed? Did did you feel like you had to have some really clear picture of where you're going to go? Like when you were a kid, were your parents sort of like that or was it more open? No, not at all. Um, 
It's very like, you know, there are a lot of things people try and sell you when you're a kid yeah. to fit in with their notion of safety. Mm. You know, particularly if you are on, um, you know, if you come from, as many of us do, come from refugee backgrounds, you know, if you're like Jewish, it means that you've never really had a proper ancestral home. Um, yeah. or, or lots of us, you know, come from different places around Europe where you've been in a sort of a refugee. Our great-grandparents have been sort of nomadic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that scared feeling of like putting, you know, I know people whose grandmother just couldn't let them out the door without putting some food in their pockets or, you know, you yeah. there's this just like a whole different generational thing of not knowing if mm. you're going to be safe for your next meal, if you're going to be safe to come home to a, to a warm, dry place, you know, mm-hmm. it's very real mm-hmm. for those people ancestrally. Yeah. And you know, that trickles down to us. But, you know, we aren't in that position, luckily. You know, yours and my rock bottom, <laughs> thankfully, at the moment, we panic about money and we panic about what's going on. But the truth is that your and my rock bottom is each other's sofa, um, <laughs> which, is more, which is more luxurious than yeah. most of the people on the planet, you know, yeah. while we're panicking. Yeah. So we're actually in pretty good shape. But, but um a lot of people have tried to sell us this idea, these notions of security and safety, like having it all planned out. Um, and one, the plans never work. Uh, and mm. two, the whole attitude of scarcity that says, I cannot allow the flow of life to carry me along without mm. my ego needing to nail it down to have some assumed notion of safety, I think is being shown more and more and more to be false, you know, to be not, mm. you know, sometimes you can plan it out and it'll all go according to plan. And sometimes you plan it out and it won't go according to plan and you can yeah. pretty much flip a coin uh, for whether <laughs> which of those two things are going to happen i once spoke to a wonderful mm. uh, indian philosopher called ramesh balsakar when we were traveling in india and he had a wonderful mm. animated voice where he was basically saying you know decide what you want to do one of three things will happen mm. one you will i will get what i want two i will not get what i want three I will get what nobody expected. And which of those three things happened? You have no control. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that must have really, I, this is another thing I've been thinking about, which was like how that, how those travels affected you and Duncan, you know, of like being able to, I mean, you told me a story in the last interview about running into Asha Bosley randomly, yeah. randomly right? And and I just think about I mean you know sometimes I, I almost feel a little jealous of uh, you know most but mostly just grateful that you're able to run into these people and often weave weave their words and their stories into some of these songs I and mean, a lot of the one giant leap songs have intros that get stuck in my head sometimes and you know leads even things like becoming nobody weaving in this stuff this archival footage in a way that it's just inspiring every single time it kind of up, it kind of upgrades your mindset and you were traveling around and you know i'm you know it's cha- challenging to travel sometimes but you you got to you know i'd love to hear about that like how how really being in the room and ramdas is a perfect example as well being in the room with yeah. these people who have just dedicated their lives to their soul evolution and the evolution of the planet yeah i mean I don't know if they they look like they've dedicated their lives to it because that's the part you see. 
Mm. It's a bit like thinking that everything by Picasso is great. That's because that's you only see the bits that Picasso hung on the wall. <laughs> uh, if you went if you went around to Picasso's studio, you'd see a lot of very average work, I'm sure. Yeah. And you know, so you know, we we get very um, perfectionist about and 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 consider ourselves not part of the genius set because we only see their amazing stuff. Um, that's true. So, you know, like Ramdas says, and I think he maybe even he says it in uh, the movie, he says, mm. you know, all the great spiritual masters and teachers, they're all totally neurotic. Yeah, he does. Um, the difference is that they just have a different relationship to their neurosis. They don't, <laughs> they, you know, they know, like, I know that I'm a total fucking mess. I know <laughs> that I've got greediness and neediness and um, uh. all those things. The difference between you and I maybe is that I don't mm. mind. Mm. I don't look at that as me being a spiritual failure. Mm. The actual rejection of those parts of myself is what's being a, a, a spiritual failure. It's not about eradicating those mm-hmm. so-called less spiritual things. It's about being like, yeah, sometimes I'm greedy. Yeah, sometimes I'm needy. Yeah, sometimes I'm fearful. Yeah, sometimes mm. I'm deceitful. Yeah, sometimes I'm insecure. Sometimes I'm fucking masterful. Sometimes I'm genius. <laughs> This is what being a human is, the full spectrum of all that mess, half yeah. animal, half angel. Mm. Accepting that and loving that about ourselves is enlightenment. Trying to only cherry-pick the nice enlightened bits mm. is fucking immature, stupid, and nothing to do with spirituality. And can feel like spiritual bypassing, depending on how they do it. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, one of the quotes in the movie where Ram Dass was talking, I think he was talking to this non, one of his non-physical friends, and his non-physical friends... Emmanuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Which I'd love to hear more about that sometime. And, but he's saying, you know, you came to Earth as a school, why don't you try taking the curriculum? That's exactly that. You know, Ram yeah. was caught, he admits, he was caught in, there must be some sort of mistake. Why am I not enlightened, you know? Um, <laughs> And being in denial of all his so-called negative, unspiritual traits. But there's Mm. nothing spiritual about denying your own humanity. And that's what he says also in the movie that Alan Watts said to him. He goes, Dick, (laughs) you're too attached to emptiness. (laughs) Drunk and a Benedictine monastery, right? (laughs) That's right. Trouble trouble with you, Dick. (laughs) That's the other thing I tell people. This is Because I try to, for lack of a better word, I'm not going to say the word sell, um, but I, I, I persuaded a lot of people to see Becoming Nobody. And one of the things I say is, Wonderful. no, really, because it's my favorite documentary. One of the things that I say is, uh, and I'm a documentary nerd as well, but in it, so and one of the things I say is, this is actually the funniest, one of the funniest spiritual films. <laughs> That's one of the things I tell everyone. That's why I made the film, was to get, you know, Ram Dass is in a lot of films. Yeah. Um, but he's... All of them, he's kind of quite serious in them. Mm. Mm. And it, it doesn't really capture his whole character, does it? Exactly. It, it, <laughs> what I found, the reason I made, was making the film was because I wanted to make the definitive film, which really got across what a beautiful, sacred mm. fool he is and how hilarious and how loving and how unpretentious he is. Mm-hmm. And um, And they were like, yeah. Here's the here the keys to the archive. Go, go for it. <laughs> wow. Well, this is a good segue to a question that I've maybe a selfish question of mine, which is I'm just curious, how much footage did you watch to cut that down? Like how? Yeah. How, 
Because yeah. me having an editing background as well, I'm just like, this is really well put together. There must have been so much. Well, I had help as well. Like, There's yeah. two levels to it. Like, First of all, I already had a lot of ideas um, about anecdotes and favorite Ramdas moments that I knew I already wanted in. Right. Um, so, so a lot of it was about finding good versions of those anecdotes, mm. like the crochet story or the, <laughs> the stuff about the, the space suit, and all that stuff. Like I knew quite clearly that we were going to start with the space suit and we were going to end with the death stuff, you know, and, mm. and then the rest of the process is just about putting the best stuff in the middle. Mm. Um, it's always much easier to make a project when you know the beginning and you know the end. Yeah. Um, that, that it's like getting the corners in a puzzle. Yep. The rest of it was me and Duncan and my great editors in New York mm. all plowing through the archive. And then, you know, one of them would go, oh, my God, I've just found the most amazing. Look at this. And the bit where he talks about kissing the woman who was dying of cancer and it was the next thing to necrophilia. You know, somebody, <laughs> somebody came across that. They went, oh, my God, look at this. This is incredible. Oh, my God, that has to go in. You know, you just like, you know, when you've come, they're all yeah. jewels, but you know when you've mm. come up with a mega jewel, you know. Yeah. You got the uh, Hope Diamond out of the yeah, archive. Exactly. <laughs> and then of just like musically giving it enough space to breathe mm. um, so that it's not so dense that it's just a constant in, the, in one ear and out the other. Uh, but it's not so spacey that it looks like a glorified YouTube clip. It's about getting that sweet spot in the middle. Did, I'm glad you brought up the music because you worked with uh, Alex Forster with this. Yeah. Well, Alex is a genius and clearly much harder working than me. <laughs> okay. It's not a competition, right? But did, did, did he write music for dissolving specifically for that? Or was it something he was working on or, um, cause it pairs so well, so well with the film. Um, to be truthful, we made that album about four years before the film, um, and it just seemed that it was meant to be. Yeah. It wasn't made for the film, although maybe it was cosmically. We just didn't know it. Yeah. Um, but then when I knew how much I loved the internal album, it's one, one of the most fa- one of the favorite things I've ever made with, you know, um, and I had such a good time making that film. That album was made in India as well, which is something kind of cool, is that basically there was a One Giant Leap fan who had just built a recording studio in his flash yoga center in yo in goa and said no i would be if you would inaugurate my recording studio by coming over and make it i will fly you to india if you, with your girlfriend if you will make something in my studio to to start it off on a on a blessed kind of vibe and i was like oh all right if you if i must be flown all expenses paid to goa in india and stay in your luxury yoga center and recording studio if you absolutely force me i think i could be persuaded um and uh, but i'm not gonna like it yeah (laughs) that was how where that album came from or at least the first blast of it and um wow and then later i've always loved it and then later um i was just using it as placeholders musically for the for the roundhouse movie and of course it was so perfect. It was like, this is just meant to be here. Yeah. 
and so it was just like well that's that that's done then we don't need to compose a whole bunch of new music let's just remix this stuff it's so so perfect did alex i'm just curious about because like I, I feel like people don't talk about the soundtrack to this enough did alex come out to india or did he work on it after yeah, the we, initial we, yeah, we did the trip together we started we, we were oh, straight wow. away yeah we did the trip and we had the best time out there it was so great this place fucking amazing i didn't know music for dissolving was all, all recorded in india that's that's awesome yeah the first half definitely first and then, half. then then the re, the mixing and the mm-hmm. few more bot- musicians brought in when we were back in london alex did much 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 more of the work on that record than me by a million mm-hmm. miles mm-hmm, mm-hmm, i was mm-hmm. just swanning about telling everyone what to do as usual well just wanted to get make an album which was like the perfect mixture between indian meditation classical mm-hmm. meditation music and blade runner by vangelis that was the, my brief for the record no way i could yeah. see that i love that soundtrack too yeah me too Van, Van, vangelis is a brilliant 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 um wow 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 so so i, I want to ask you about this new film you're working on before i forget we'll probably round oh, yeah. back around uh you i think you mentioned something about Adam and Eve last time, and I and I, maybe it's changed its name. Can you t- tell us about uh, any new films you're looking at? Yeah, so Adam and Eve has been slightly paused because it needs, in order to do a thing about relationships, it needs to be more character-led, person-led. You can't just do things about subjects anymore. It has to be following a bunch of people doing something. So sure. I'm slightly kind of rethinking that one. But mm-hmm. what I want to make at the moment is a movie called, or well, we're starting it now actually, it's a movie called Aliveness. Ooh. Or alive, I can't remember. And it's um, when I'm teaching creativity, I'm very clear with people that when you're offering your gifts or you're giving a talk or you're doing a project, mm. what people are interested, people aren't actually, oddly, people are not interested uh, in the content of what you're doing. Right. What they're really interested in is aliveness. Mm. And they will watch a TED talk about microbiology or about you know, all kinds of subjects that they're not in the least bit interested in. If the person themselves is just brimming with aliveness, Mm -hmm. that's really what we all want. Um, And so I often tell people when they're making their documentaries that when you're, when you're watching an interview that you've done, you're watching it back in the edit suite or on your laptop or whatever. When you first watch it back, watch it back with the sound off and just watch the eyes and when the eyes come alive Mm. keep those bits and cut all those onto the timeline and then when you've done that watch it back with those bits with the sound on and you'll find out what your documentary is about wow and um it really works so so i'm just taking that idea further and i'm interviewing all kinds of people about what fascinates them what turns them on their best ever experiences what they love, uh, their favorite memories, what they're fascinated and curious about, and just going to cut together all the aliveness and see what beautiful transmission of aliveness happens. Aliveness. I'm looking forward to that. Is there a travel component to that, or maybe it's not as important? I don't mind. You know, it would be lovely. It would be lovely to have a multicultural... How many days were you on Maui when you were... Because Becoming Nobody is a, you know, it's interspersed. It's a live interview with archival footage. And I I just wanted to touch on 
um, what that experience was like. I mean, you'd obviously hung out with Ram Dass before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was in the last two of my films. He was in yeah. One Giant Leap and What About Me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like you spent a lot more time with just him, obviously. Yeah, we did. In, the, in that that trip, it was like a two or three week trip to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, what I asked for was four two-hour interviews. Okay. So we did three or four two-hour interviews with a few days between each one. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the way that I do interviews is I'm, I'm very conversational. They're not very structured. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's stuff I want to get through. And, there's you know, there's certain, especially with Ramdas, there's certain subject matter that I want to cover, you mm-hmm. know, certain things that I, you know, I'm interested in about anger, about mm-hmm. the ego, about people disowning their humanity about the shadow about death you know there's there's definite things i want to talk to him about Mm -hmm. but also there's a kind of subtext going on all the way through and i think this is what is quite interesting about the film is is that it was pretty obvious that as well as getting the good footage to cover all the ramdas um subject matter the other thing that was going on was that i was a young guy who was who had come over there to in some way try and get anointed you know that i i huh. i'd come over there to be told that i was a good son yeah again even though i start the whole movie admitting mm-hmm. that i did that 25 years earlier yeah like him. the 90s right <laughs> yeah i had come back for you know to fucking this time make him say it once and for all oh. and um you know get oh, he didn't actually love- say it before he does. At the end of the movie, he says, you're a great son. I mean, in the in the 90s, he didn't actually quite say it like that? No, when I said I wanted to be told I'm a good son, he looked at me and went, well, are you? Oh, that's all he said. Oh, I thought there might have yeah. been more to that. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> He's always been really sweet to me since then. But, like, you know, you should see, if you really want to see, like, he said to me at the end of the fourth interview, he goes, Jamie... There's a really interesting way you can edit this. He didn't say any more, but what he was really saying to me was, you can admit why you really came here in this movie if you want. You can make a movie about me, but you can Whoa! also include it. He didn't say that explicitly, but I knew that's what he meant. Because if you edit this, right, you confess. You can be totally transparent or be much, you can be totally seen in the subtext of what this whole experience was for you, which was not just about making a film about me, it's about you coming to get something. So if he hadn't said that, that might, it might have been a different ending to the movie. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just like, yeah, exactly. It made me really acknowledge that I had, you know, why I... I'd come for me. And that's why it's, it's the whole movie begins. The first words out of his mouth are, what are you doing here? You know, that's, that's, that's the real <laughs> that subtext question, which we want to put in the audience's mind. Yes, yeah. it's a movie about Ramdas, but what's he really doing here? Mm. And then at the end, it's all, it all comes out. Um, mm. So I hope I kind of honored him mm. by editing it and making that part of it as transparent as I knew he quite wanted me to. I feel like you did, yeah. One of the things I end up talking about on this show, it's like inevitable. By the way, sorry, just to jump in. If you look at IMDB, the sort of movie logging website of all the different people, not only notice that, but are so brutal about it. There's about 150 reviews on IMDb going, who the fuck does this person think he is? (laughs) How 
ironic that they would make a film called Becoming Nobody when this guy came to become somebody so, so transparently. And people are like almost furious about it on that website. <laughs> Damn it, Jamie. We got to put that in the show notes. Thank you for telling me that. I'll put that in the show notes. Well, look at the guy. It's absolutely like, who the fuck does he think he is? I can't wait to. to what a fucking crappy filmmaker. Talk about the breaking the cardinal rule of not being able to keep your own agenda out of the movie. Here's how not to make a film like this. <laughs> well, I feel like this is one of your superpowers, Jamie, and maybe we can talk about this. Like, you, maybe it's just because you, I feel, you know, people can tell your heart is in the right place. I mean, no one's perfect, but like you, I believe, I believe I'll, I'll take ownership of this. I believe you genuinely want to help humanity evolve and become. I want to inspire everyone and wake up all the hearts as much as I can while I live. Of course I do. Yeah. Right. So like, because people feel your intention, right. I think that, and also you're pretty charming. So like, you know, you can, you know, (laughs) I think you get a little bit of breathing room around. It's sort of, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> you get a little breathing room around that. Not with everybody, obviously. IMDb people can be pretty intense. But I would say generally, you know, the film is... Everybody I've shown it to has, you know, been nothing but feeling positive about it. They don't go, oh, this guy. So <laughs> self-involved. They might, be thinking it. they might be thinking it, though. This <laughs> might not be an appropriate thing to say in a spiritual <laughs> gathering. I, wouldn't I don't know. I got some pretty blunt friends. But, yeah. How is your relationship with that? I mean, of course, you know, as we're growing, we're in our own, our character journey. We learn about, more about ourselves more all the time, right? And we often have these traits that are just there from, like, before childhood. And then as adults, we go, okay, how am I going to harness this? And, and also, like, you know, sometimes there's traits where we feel like we've almost got to shield other people from them. Do you know what I mean? Like, is that, how is that? Maybe that's not a great frame to frame it as, but I think you know what I mean. How has that changed for you? What what, what in particular? I don't know. Just like travel, especially, you know, I believe is the most, one of the most powerful classrooms on earth. Yeah, sure. And you sort of get these reflections back at you, you know, pretty intense reflections sometimes of like, oh, this is something you got to work on. You got to work on your patience or you got to work on, it could be like self-forgiveness or it could be. You got to work on being sensitive to other fucking people in their cultures and that they may not like the idea necessarily take it as, as a given that it's a very good idea to come over, start recording their magic and their culture and yeah. mix it up with other cultures and just totally think, the white male privilege of like, oh, I've come over here. I'm going to record these <laughs> that I'm going to record the Indian people. I'm going to edit it all together. It's like, well, who fucking gave you permission to dip yeah. your little fucking thing into current cultures that are not yours, that you don't have, you know, rights to, or you don't have ancestry right. in and just start using it as your little white male privilege, artistic palette. Who fucking told you to do that? And there were a few people on the trip who, who asked us that, that very question. <laughs> so how do you, this is a perfect example, Jamie. Thank you for saying that. How do you frame that? How do you? Well, I just, I kind yeah. of answer it very similarly to what you just said. Mm. It's like, look, I feel I'm coming from a good place. You know, I, I've got to just judge myself soberly. Hmm. And I don't think I have the right to do it, but I 
but but I don't think I don't have the right to do it as a citizen of Earth. And I see what I see, and that everything I see is an influence, just like that's how music was made. You know, anyone who is a purist and say you can't mix this with that doesn't really understand how art and music evolved on this planet. Because if you think about, like, music, for example, itself... Mm-hmm. The trade routes in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, whatever, they would go these caravans taking the Moroccan blankets across Europe or the Spanish taking their spices and their chilies and whatever, and the French people, you know, like all these different merchants um, of all this stuff would be on constant caravans across the land, going from city to city, selling their stuff in the markets. And then at night time, they would all camp outside the walls of the city and the music Musicians would take out their instruments and the guy from Morocco would jam with the guy from from you know <laughs> Spain or or somewhere else and they would all pick up strands of each other's melodies and folk tunes and then they would go off in opposite directions and hence music evolved they brought back different melodies and those evolved into different things that's how religion cult you know they try and nail down religion and say no it was fixed in a book and that's it but or even religion it all evolved out of folk tales and mm-hmm. stories and magic that was being exchanged by the the minstrels uh and the singers and the poets and the merchants as they constantly traveled around the planet that's how our, the world culture evolved yeah. so there isn't really such a thing as purism and if you think there is and you're getting uppity about it you don't really understand how the history of this planet evolved yeah the narrow-mindedness it's it's the enemy of growth i would argue <laughs> well it's just some people just like to be purist because they've they've kind of saddled glued their identity to like if somebody has like studied sanskrit you know deeply for 12 years and they're a fluent master and they've really like based a lot of their identity that that's what they're a master of and they're better than everyone else then when somebody comes along like me and in their workshop starts inventing sanskrit just to sound clever and starts pretending they know sanskrit when i don't but just to annoy (laughs) people make up some sanskrit which i do all the time And I only make up Sanskrit. Yeah, I make up Sanskrit because I met this person that was incredibly uptight and incredibly (laughs) anal and purist about Sanskrit. Uh And so it annoyed, it just bothered me. It made me laugh and it bothered me. And so because he was there, I started inventing Sanskrit as I love inventing my own ancient Chinese and Indian lineages whenever I I get... um, because I think there's a foolish fun in having a total free reign creatively, as well as respecting the ancient texts and the and the specifics. Mm. So I would make up Sanskrit just to irritate him, and um, <laughs> and often chuck in a bit of. Because there was basically, I had this girlfriend who used to be his girlfriend, and Uh-oh. she was like, my ex used to speak fluent sanskrit so when they were in one of my events i pretended that i spoke fluent sanskrit and they were the only two that knew i was bullshitting and the other 200 people were like oh really that comes from the word which is the root of the da 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 and it's like of course it isn't um and in my teacher training now i i there's a module out of the 10 months of the teacher training mm-hmm. one of the seminars is all about um teaching things you know aren't true Wow. And give, giving yourself that permission to just totally go off piste and just make shit up if you want to, you know. I'm glad you brought up Bring It, your teacher training, because I want to touch on that. Um, definitely. But I'm, I'm just, I just, before we get to that, I got to ask, Jamie, uh, how does one <laughs> invent 
Sanskrit? Like you're you're like extrapolating words? Like I'm just curious, like yeah, what you mean by that? Something up. Just I will be talking about a concept to do with basically, like for example, maybe we're we're doing the part of the course where we're teaching how to lead a meditation, and partly leading a meditation is just leading a meditation, but partly you're transmitting your heart energy throughout the space to kind of bathe everybody in a sea of love. Basically, it sounds hippie, but that is genuinely what you're doing. You're sending your intention of love and your field. You know, your heart has a torus-shaped donut field of energy around it, and you want to expand that beautiful field of energy into the space and and just encourage lovingly tenderly in a non-pushy way as as much as possible everybody else's hearts to soften and, mm. and go on a journey and um so you're kind of partly showing people things but you're partly just transmitting yeah and transmitting comes from the sanskrit kusumapa which is a rooted kind of beacon which actually comes from the the same word as they have for the earth's core which is pulsing energy warmth you know through the planet and i'll say something like that i mean i just made that up on the spot but <laughs> but, 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 but just having but Jamie, the enjoyment how can we... <laughs> <laughs> just having the enjoyment like i think i'm it's just part of my rebelliousness that i was kind it's of true i went to very conservative schools where they mm. were very frowning upon that kind of behavior and they were very much about the ancient latin and the historians and they were the, the cream of the world's teachers it was like a very posh school did you go to one of those those like boy only boarding schools absolutely i did yeah i did oh, i went man. to one of the three most Tough. Yeah, I went. To, I went to one of the top schools in the world, and and they were they they kind of were very wow. conservative, you know, about things mm-hmm. like that, and mm-hmm. and I didn't like the way that they expressed that to me, frankly, and um, and treated me like I was a problem, and um, but actually, it set me up for life. Them treating me like I was a problem. One because it gave me the free reign to rebel and yep. push something to lean into, and maybe they knew that. Um, and the other thing was that when when I left school, having been treated as just such a loser and such a problem all the time academically, uh, I went to work as a runner for a movie. My first job was working as the animation runner on a movie called Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And um, wait, hold on, you're blowing my mind. You worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit? The well, next... worked on is very very loosely. I carried boxes around and made tea for people. It was my first job. Still, yeah, that's, that's wild. Kind of yeah, random. it was really fun because it was a very pioneering, technical, incredible process where they were creating real shadows yeah. on the cells. It was an extraordinary process, if you know what they went into, to make the 3D. It was an extraordinary whole thing. Anyway, um, but they treated, me, they treated me with the same average ambivalence that you would treat <laughs> any runner. You know, they don't give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, they don't even look at you. They're just like, make me tea, take the box down the road. You know, they, they just, you're, they're totally ambivalent towards you. But for me, having been wow. treated like such a loser in school for so many years, for me, it was such a step up hmm. being treated with average ambivalence <laughs> that I thought to myself, <laughs> I thought to myself, these people fucking love me. They think I'm amazing. I was so, <laughs> so touched and blown away to be... So because they weren't that. outright negative at you? Exactly. They were just... Wow. But to me, it was such a lift oh uh, that I just... My career soared from that moment. I had such <laughs> confidence. 
I, how did you get that job, if I can ask? Like, that's a pretty cool first job. Yeah, no, my friend's big brother was working. Basically, there was this animation company called Dick Williams Animation. He's the guy that came up with the cartoon of the Pink Panther. He's a really amazing art an, an, animator. And he ha- he did a lot of, like, commercials and stuff. And then when they made Roger Rabbit, they bought Dick Williams Disney bought Dick Williams Animation to make Roger Rabbit. And I was working for Dick Williams Animation when they bought when they got bought by Disney. I'd literally just started as they were being bought by Disney. So that's just my good luck. Wow. Were you in London at the time or in Oxford? Or? Yeah. It was in Soho Square. It was their lovely offices. So These are the day, days did the days when you before computers this is when you used to paint twenty four cells for every second. Yeah. So 24 frames a second. You painted 24 pictures for every second. So let's just work out how many cells. I'm just going to do this on the calculator right do now. It. By so hand, say, yeah. Let's say that there's 24 in a second times 60 is in how many in a minute. And let's say that, that, that it's um, 85 minutes, an hour and 25. So... They had to make 122,000 drawings. And and in Roger Rabbit, they had to make double that because every cell has not only the picture, it's got an extra cell on top of the shadow that's on that picture. So they would only expose... If they wanted a shadow on the side of a lamp, they did an exact shape of that shadow and put it over the cell. So that ex- let's say they'd expose the cell for yeah. 30%, without the shadow on, and then they put the shadow on the lamp and exposed it for the final 30%, and then that meant that that bit of shadow had been exposed 30% less than the rest of the picture, and it created a genuine shadow 24 times every fucking second. So it was, so it was a quarter of a million pictures that they had to make. Oh, my God. Uh, just to make that film. i got to watch that film again. <laughs> as, a, as a photography triumph, I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, it's a good story, too. So, so were you, were you, were you doing like sort of like a personal assistant type stuff for that company as well when it was bought? Uh, well, personal assistant would be glorifying it. We're really (laughs) making tea, going through boxes and picking up the yellow paint. Yellow paint's important. Yeah. Well, especially when you've got a rabbit, which has yellow inside his ears. (laughs) in a quarter of a million pictures <laughs> no i mean that, that was actually i was actually being genuine when i said that um yeah so so how like did you have an idea when you were in uni of like what you want i mean we're kind of getting back to what we talked about 42 minutes ago uh do you have an idea of what you kind of wanted to you you were how young were you when you started playing music well i started very young Luckily, I had parents that that were generous enough to give me piano lessons when I was a little boy. Mm. So I did, you know, basic, you know, Chopin preludes and, you know, like, you know, and then stopped doing that. But then, then when I was, when my parents were getting divorced when I was like 11, we went on this holiday and, you know, us kids, you know, in those days, we're talking like late 70s, you you were left to roam around, you know, they didn't do a lot of like specific activities for the kids, the way they do this. These days they program all the children's time. In those days you were just like pushed out the door. They wanted you out. They want you outside. And would you like follow train tracks and stuff? My dad used to follow train tracks. That kind of thing. Exactly. Well, I was on a Greek Island and I was just roaming around this kind of holiday center place. We were, 
And I heard this music coming from, you know, age like 11, I heard this music coming from this tent, this big, big tent where which was the evening place where all the guests would have dinner mm. and i put my head around and i see the house band from the evening cabaret sessions you know it's kind of a tacky holiday place <laughs> they're running they're, they're running through the day's numbers that they're going to play later while everyone's having dinner and the cabaret blah 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 and i my eye is caught by this incredible gleaming drum set drum kit and i just mm. had a maze a major falling in love moment just looking at this drum kit this gleaming thing with cymbals and drums mm -hmm. and toms and this fucking cool french guy with sunglasses and long hair who was sitting at the kit you know learning the tracks with the piano player and the guitarist and mm. it was a bunch of french guys who were the house band for cool. for that holiday center and i just watched and watched and watched and every day i would come back and just like transfixed watching this drummer and this, the deep thudding sound of the echoing drums it was just like yum mm -hmm. and on a day three or four he kind of noticed me and beckoned me to come in and took me up onto the stage and sat me down on the drums and then in their coffee breaks he would give me drum lessons he just sort of took me under his wing and wow. i spent the whole holiday learning the drums and falling in love with the drums and falling in love with this French man who just taught me the drums and was so kind to me, okay. uh, a guy called Xavier. I'd love to find him one day. And um, Xavier? And then he was called Xavier, which is a French name. Oh, Xavier. The net. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, when I came back from that holiday, I was drums crazy and I just was absolutely... <laughs> You know, from the age of like 12 to 16, I did very little except play the drums wow. um, and be in bands and things like that. And then then I stopped wow. doing that for about when I was about 17, when I left that school. And then when my best friend died when I was 20, a friend taught me. I was very touched spiritually at that time. I was like really, really, really moved by non-religious spiritual things you know like jesus but not christianity like buddha but not buddhism like kind of just a lot of things theosophy and alice bailey and mm. rudolf steiner and all kinds of different things we were taking out we were taking mushrooms and going up to the highlands of scotland and praying and stuff i just found actually some old photos of us wow. when we were all like 18 and i had this great friend who uh, called rick rudd who we had this cottage together in scotland when we were 18 and he since then did a, he channeled a system called the Gene Keys, which is a very, very popular um, kind of divination, a spiritual system, the Gene Keys. And and I've just got these pictures of us aged 18, first getting touched spiritually up in the highlands of Scotland, taking mushrooms and stuff. It was so beautiful. And I've been reconnecting with him recently. Uh, and that's when I picked up a guitar. And when my best friend Dominic died when I was 20, suddenly mm. I just started writing songs. And, and I, it's something about your best friend dying that, as, as terrible as it is, yeah. it gives you a kind of a hall pass. Mm. Like, no one can expect you to do anything they want you to do and conform to anything they want you to conform to mm. after that after that point. Your best friend's died. You'll do what the fuck you like, you know. Yeah. Uh, you're the guy whose best friend died. So there was this kind of, like, license it gave me. Um, what did you do with that license? Yeah, started a band. There you go. And then ben was a touring musician for the next twenty years. Was that Faithless? That, no, 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 no. That, that was, was before. Yeah, it was like seven years earlier. Uh, it was a band called the Big Truth Band, which was based on the Irish band, the Hot House Flowers, which is basically gospel rock and roll, oh, rock and roll with gospel backing. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah! Honky -tonk. Uh, yeah, honky tonk. 
Yeah, we had songs like Get Sacred. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear a recording of this stuff now. Oh, I'll send you stuff, yeah. We, oh. we were in the charts once with our cover of Ooby Doo, I Want to Be Like You. Ooby Doo. That's a, that's a, that, that song's actually fire. Uh, people we had, yeah, we had a rocking uh, Led Zeppelin version of that. They wrote that for Jungle Book, didn't they? Yeah. It's good. It's really good. So it's reminding me of... Um, so for people, I'm just kind of getting this question coming up. I think uh, it's not coming from me. Uh, but in terms of for people who do lose somebody close to them, or maybe they have, they lose several people, you know, we've, we've, we've just had a pandemic, um, not to make this too timely, but a pandemic happened and people have lost people close to them. Like, how do you, you know, do you have any advice for people who maybe it's happened a few years ago and they're still kind of processing it? Maybe they haven't given themselves space to process it. You know, what was your grieving process like? Yeah. To be honest, I kind of worried a bit about my grieving process because mm. both when Dom died and also my dad died very suddenly. Oh, my God. Um, he actually took his own life. Um, I didn't ever wow. feel like I was fully upset enough. Like, when I heard about my dad, my first thought was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that, that kind of fits. Like, I wasn't like, oh, my God, wow. my family's ripped apart. You know, my I was like, oh. I was more like, oh, wow, okay. That's kind of like, I didn't I didn't fall apart, you know. I mean, I had a lot of sadness mm. after that, you know, imagining him loading the gun was very intense because it was like, <laughs> I could imagine pulling the trigger in a moment of, like, impulsive. That didn't seem like such a big deal, the actual, that moment. The moment of loading the gun felt much more intense and hard to, to live with for me. What kind of headspace must have he been in? sitting there putting those bullets in that gun that that that's the bit that that really hurts me um and um but i also kind of again i was like it gave me it gave me this kind of permission again like that when that fucking intense shit happens to you it kind of removes you from all the shoulds it removes you from all not the responsibilities but obligations it kind of does it kind of removes you from, yeah it removes you from everybody else's model about mm. what earth is and what you should be doing it's like mm. it shows you that nothing is you're not going to get looked after there's no deals where if you're a good boy or a good girl god is going to look after you there's no mm. no signing on the dotted line there's no contracts that you're going to be pretty heavy fucking unexpected shit is going to happen at any moment yeah. people are going to suddenly leave you people are suddenly going to die people are suddenly going to maybe even be cruel to you or violent to you or you're suddenly going to get ill or like yeah. this planet is just the fucking planet of like insane unexpected limitations yeah. shocks you know just it's don't, a zoo. It's just a zoo. do what you fucking want do what you want while you're here don't be unkind to people but yeah. but do what you fucking want you know don't fit in with everyone's model of what you think you should do and being spiritual and being a good soldier and being mm. a good son and a good just just don't you know, when someone suddenly dies or heavy shit happens, it kind of gives you permission to just drop all the things that are expected of you and just do what really makes your heart come alive. And if Dominique hadn't died, is his name, I think? Dom yeah, Dominic. If Dominic hadn't died, maybe you hadn't, would have never started a band. Who knows? Yeah, well, exactly. Who knows? That's beautiful what you just said, though. <laughs> like, Carpe diem. Death, exactly. Death is the ultimate permission slip. <laughs> Walking permission slip. I think about that so much. <laughs> I do. 
is that is that is that the real origin i suppose that loss because you know you you say you've said this in the film and i believe you say this in some other places too how you want to be a walking permission slip for people do you want to talk about that just like giving people permission to i guess it's basically what you just said like giving people permission to live in accordance with their heart and not be shaped by society yeah i mean you can try and conform mm. Or you can even try and conform to rebelling. <laughs> and uh, neither are going to get you there. Wow. You know, they, you will always feel ripped off at the end. Wow. Do you feel like, the only thing that kind of, I have a bit of a sticking point, to be honest, though, Jamie, on one bit, which is like, so so obviously, like, Earth is this, like, chaotic I would call it like a spiritual growth classroom. And how do you reconcile that chaos with that sense that things do at the end of the, at the end of the day, at the end, from a higher perspective, things do work out. Like there isn't, I don't know, maybe it's a privileged thing for me to say, but there, at the highest level, there isn't really loss. You know what I mean? Like it's all temporary and we're, we're just learning these spiritual lessons is what it feels like. Like, How do you reconcile those two perspectives? I don't know if that makes sense. I don't think we are learning spiritual lessons. I don't think it's a linear progression. I think that's one of the big cons. Okay. Well, I didn't say it was linear, but... Go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, the part of me that's that's learning the lessons Hmm. is going to be dead and dust and a crumpled leaf in about five minutes. Like, so... (laughs) You don't think we retain that in some way? I don't know. No. no. I don't know that we don't. I don't know that we are. I just, it's just, what's the point in even speculating? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what does that make you feel better that your soul's on some journey that's going somewhere? It's like... Yeah, it does. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> like, whatever makes your socks roll up and down. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it's a very frank show, Jamie. I don't know, like you know, and you look at, but no, but look at, look at, um, you know, uh, look at like the work of Dr. Michael Newton, who would like regret, which I'd love to have on the show. Well, no, I think he might have died. I can't keep track. Um, mm-hmm. but like they, you know, uh, they regress these people back to before they were born, and they all describe the same place, this like spiritual realm. And it, it might be. I'm not saying it's not that we're, yeah. you know, and we want to be kind anyway because we have a lovelier time, and you know, yeah. So be kind and be curious and and lean into your edges because you're just going to have a better life that way. But yeah. to stamp it that it's somehow officially worthwhile because I'm on a spiritual journey feels like just as a way to control the panic. <laughs> Maybe. Hmm. It's not really my relationship to it, but it, I find it a useful framework so so maybe so uh, so have you kind of got to a point where yeah what meaning do you assign to it you just kind of like well earth is chaos and that's how it is i don't know it's chaos i just i just don't know i don't yeah that's outside of my wage bracket that's outside (laughs) of my bracket (laughs) that's that's fair that's fair as we used to say in our 20s don't ask me i'm just the piano player (laughs) (laughs) but i've got lots of things i have to say about while we're here we might as well do this and do that like i'm not saying have a meaningless life you know like give it some meaning but just don't think that that meaning is empirically truth true 
it's like paint your bedroom pink or paint your bedroom blue. It doesn't really matter. Someone's going to live in it after you and paint it a different color. But while you're in it, have a blue room by all means. But just don't think, don't think it means anything. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. It's like it kind of fits a little bit. It's reminding me of this book, The Course in Miracles. And the first thing The Course in Miracles says, mm. that table has no meaning. Mm. It's just a table. Um, you can add meaning. Oh, that means they don't love me. Or oh, that means I'm special. Or oh, that means I'm doing really well. Or oh, that means I'm safe. Or oh, that means this is all meaningless and pointless. Or oh, that means, well, only only to you. It's all totally subjective. <laughs> and a lot of it's to do with the hormones in your body at whatever point in the cycle you are, especially if you're a woman. But for guys too, you know, whatever point of the month you're in. You guys have a little totally cycle dictate, too, right? Can, yeah, it can totally dictate your level of optimism, your level of safety, your level of <laughs> creativity. And it's just because different fucking chemicals are going through your bloodstream and your organs. <sighs> There's no certainty Unless you want to act like there is, and that's fine too. Like, mm. you know, like people don't like often to hear this because they just like want an empirical yeah. kind of cookie cutter thing so mm. that we can all rest easily. But what, what I mm. tend to do is I think about it all through, realize that there's no fucking answer that I can really depend on, get exhausted and go to sleep realizing there's no, there's, there's no certainty. Mm. So that kind of comes back to the present moment. Exactly. So you might as well just be in the present moment. But it's not like be here now, like Ramdas. It's like you might. I think I would broaden be here now to <laughs> you might as well be here now. <laughs> <laughs> be be here now. Every everywhere else is taken. It's the best we got. Yeah. Be you here know, now. Like, ellipsis. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. Like who fucking knows? <laughs> so there's. Is that is that. Uh, is that like a, a just maybe just like a dusting of nihilism that I smell, or maybe you would put a different label on it? If the great thing about the nihilism is that all that's left is how am I going to be with you today? And the truth is that my most enjoyable, fruitful, creative, yeah. and juicy version of being you is going to be kind. It's going to be humorous. It's going to be mm. compassionate. It's going to be possibly creative. It might be sensual. Mm-hmm. If that's all that's left, that's kind of enough. That's very rich. Like, I've really enjoyed this last hour. Does it mean anything? Not not really. Has it helped anyone? <laughs> possibly, possibly not. Um, oh, it's going to help people. <laughs> like, does it matter? You know, does, it, does anything of this matter? No. Have I had a really well-spent hour? Absolutely. Thank you. I guess we can, yeah, we can start to wrap up, and then we'll do the, the little after show. People can check out the after show at my Patreon and help support the show and doing more amazing interviews like this. It's Patreon, P A T R. E-O-N.com slash Hello Crusoe. Hello, C-R-U-S-O-E. It's in the show notes at andrewcrusoe.com. Um, we're going to have a little fun little after show about that. Um, is there anything else you want to say about our journey to... to? Because I, I do feel like you're, just looking at it objectively, you know, you've really... Your career is just fascinating to me, Jamie. <laughs> and you just keep making great stuff. And I think it's... I don't want to be like cliche about this, but I do think your work helps heal the world. That's my opinion. Yeah. I mean, while we have, while we don't know any better, that, let's try and do that. That's what I say. Yeah. Do you um, have any? Uh, okay. Yeah. But I would say that if anyone is listening, that is still listening and isn't thinking like, who the fuck does this person think he is? 
cocky, fucking white male privileged <laughs> ass. If you've stayed on the line and you're still listening, <laughs> like, and you want one thing to do, you know, a lot of people are saying, what, you know, you talk about this, you talk about that, but can you just give us a simple practice, a simple thing that you can do mm. that will positively benefit yourself in the world and i would say yes if you want one thing simple thing to do to take away to 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 experiment with make it your absolute point of fascination and point of focus and ninja witnessing business to really 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 notice your self-talk really pay attention to the way you speak to yourself inside your mind and concentrate on being disciplined about upping the levels of kindness and reducing the levels of judgment and exasperation if you really focus on that self um upholding Mm -hmm. um and less self-recrimination that will be a massive thing for your life and a massive thing to help the people around you Hmm. that's beautiful and you can have a more abundant life as a result. I'd say so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything that you would like to, because we do try to keep these not too more than too much more than an hour, but I, I definitely have a question for you in the after show. Um, mm. Do you, would you like to point anybody to anything? I think people should definitely check out your teacher training. Bring it. If they like your vibe. Yeah, if you come to my website, jamiecato.com, there's Bring It. And if you don't want to do teacher training, there's another great thing, which is this closed group for six months, going on a journey for six months with me called The Game Changer. Hmm. Um, so there's jamiecato.com forward slash bring it. There's jamiecato.com forward slash game changer. Uh, and there's lovely music if you go forward slash music. And, you know. Very lovely music. Yeah. Hey, t- tell me about Game Changer. What, what, what do they get with Game Changer? Game Changer is just you, we have a lovely group of 20 people and it's the same group every week for a couple of hours and we play my games and we have discussions and we love and support each other and after six months of doing that, you've got some lifelong friends who really love you and get you and have been on a a Mm. deepening, hilarious journey with you Mm. into your intimacy, into your creativity, into your shadows, into your optimism, into your pessimism, into your mess, into your confidence, um, into your expanding yourself out of that edited little clenched thing (laughs) that we all became in our childhoods. Yeah, yeah. Well, having been to... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, just doing it as a team, as a chosen family, instead of all by yourself. A lot of people are doing this stuff, but it's quite lonely. It's much more fun doing it with a gang of merry band of pirates. <laughs> uh, wow, that that sounds that sounds like a lot of fun. Having been to two two of your Zoom workshops, I it sounds it sounds like something that I would enjoy. I, your Zoom yeah, workshops online. Are- and also there's another thing if you don't want to do that twice a week we have a thing called the lovely gathering that you've been at andrew mm-hmm. um which is just a free group uh, at 7 p.m on wednesdays english time and 11 a.m saturdays english time where we just gather how would you describe it it's just a community where we come and be with each other and read poems and and talk about what's hard for us what's easy for us what turtle we saw yesterday we dance yeah <laughs> live music <laughs> a little family kind of get together it's really cozy and there's there's just lovely people lovely lovely people i've i've actually yeah made a couple friends from just going to that 
you know, mm. people from all over the world as well, obviously. But yeah, um, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of funny though, and being in Hawaii time zone right now, I I can't really make it to the what the Saturday morning one starts at like no, mid- unless you want to be two in the morning. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but the Wednesday one is the one I try to make it to, and I always enjoy yeah. it every time. Yeah, it's very intimate. People should check it out. They should follow you on. Um, you you do little Facebook posts and Instagram posts about those as well, and you're pretty different. Yeah, sometimes. If they sign up for my newsletter at jamiecato.com, the Nows letter, then you'll get reminders and Zoom links and things. That's even better. Yeah, actually, don't use social media. It's it's, it's very 2012. The newsletter is where it's at. <laughs> it's better. It's less chaotic. You can filter it. You don't have that. Yeah. It's really nice. Jamie, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, people should definitely check out your work. Check out Becoming Nobody. I think it's becomingnobody.com as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Lovely previews there. And just, yeah, check out his newsletter. Check out uh, The Gathering. The Gathering is so, so lovely. And it's twice a week. I, I'm pretty impressed at how you've kept that going for it's over two years now, isn't it? Yeah, we're in year three. It's beautiful. Wow. Well, um, yeah. Thanks again, Jamie. And um, yeah, I'm just, I just have so much gratitude for this. I'm so glad. Thanks for making time to come on the show. I deeply appreciate it. Yeah, so glad we did it. Let's go into the after show VIP lounge with the lap dance. Wow. I just want to say thank you again to Jamie for coming on the show. It was an honor to interview him for the second time, actually. I interviewed him for a past podcast a million years ago. And if you want to hear our after show, go ahead and go to andrewcrusoe.com. You can click on the podcast link and you'll find the link to my Patreon. It's also patreon.com slash hellocrusoe. And for just $5 a month, you get all of my past after shows. All of them. Also, the show notes are on andrewcrusoe.com. It'll redirect you. I, I, I don't know what else to say. I'm so grateful for this interview. I'm so grateful for everybody who's left reviews on Apple Podcasts and the other places. It's such an honor to do this show, and I can't wait to share more with you. You know what? There's one more thing I'm going to share with you. It's a little sample of something that came out last year. You know, Ascendant talks about travel as a classroom a lot, And I don't think Jamie would mind me doing a bit of shameless self-promotion here, since he does that from time to time. I released a book called 10,000 Hours in Paradise in 2018, and the audiobook for all three volumes is now out. So I'm going to include a little sample right here at the end. And if you like it, you can look it up. It's an action memoir. It's all true. It's so true I had to give everyone in the book pseudonyms. And it's called 10,000 Hours in Paradise. It's on Audible. It's on Chirp. It's on all of the places you can find audiobooks. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Below us, a lava lake of terribly magnificent fire seethed with power. Its surface roiling in unspeakable patterns, which slowly changed as cracks on its surface melted and reformed. Clearly, Pele is called Ka Wahine Ai Honua, the earth-eating woman, for a reason. The crater was so large that it was difficult to gauge its size, but later I confirmed that the crater was over 700 meters wide, the equivalent of 14 Olympic-sized swimming pools. 
An instant later, my skin felt the waves of heat radiating off the lava lake, despite the fact that we were roughly 50 meters above it. The warmth that radiated was palpable, and I found myself unable to look away, consumed by the strange sight of roiling, roaring lava. That was the last thing that hit me, the sound. At first, the roar reminded me of white noise, but there was something else, a fierceness, like a lion's roar, except that this lion was much older, much more powerful, and its roar was unending. I found the sound almost as overpowering as the sight, the heat, and the smell of sulfur. I had made it. I was standing on the edge of a live volcanic crater. At last, after years of dreaming about it, I was seeing lava, an entire lake of it, no less. I took out my camera and shot a few short videos, noticing how bubbles formed and dissolved around the red-hot cracks on the surface. Never before had I experienced an earthbound phenomenon so mesmerizing. Just a few days before, I hadn't even heard of Pele, but in that moment, I wondered if the spirit of Pele might be real after all. We stood there for some time, marveling at the destructive beauty of one of the most active volcanoes on the planet, and I looked over and realized that my companions had long since removed their gas masks and seemed fine. Apparently the winds were in our favor that evening, and after some coaxing, I removed my mask as well. Then the feeling of warmth on my face grew even more pronounced, the warmth of molten lava. I closed my eyes for a moment, and it felt almost exactly like the sun on a cloudless summer day. Ganymede reminded me that we'd brought food. He said we were going to do some extreme picnicking, and I was surprised to realize that I was suddenly famished. We sat down on some of the large rocks that littered the area and pulled out small containers of food. Ganymede had brought beer, and we laughed at the absurdity of where we were eating. Then Ganymede walked over to the edge of the crater and poured some beer out as an offering to Pele, thanking her for letting us stay there for a short time. As we ate our food, we relished in the incredible experience we were sharing. Someone had even brought wine. And in the midst of great gratitude toward May and our guide Ganymede, we toasted to Pele on the edge of the world. And that's the sample of 10,000 Hours in Paradise, Part 1, Arrival, available on Audible and all the other places. Thanks again for being here, and I'll see you next time.